Hello and welcome to episode 50 of Full Time with Meg Linehan, a show all about women's soccer on the Athletic Podcast Network. I'm your host, Meg, and I am very excited and also slightly bewildered to hit this number of shows, but we have a great one in store for you today. First, friend of the show, Sandra Herrera of CBS Sports, is back to discuss the send-off series for the U.S. Women's National Team and also Mexico, catching up on the NWSL, of course, and her new podcast with CBS, Attacking Third. Then Adam Crafton of The Athletic joins from the U.K. for a special Euro 2020 segment as he's been leading the way on the coverage of how UEFA has handled, or um, perhaps not handled, rainbows and other LGBTQ plus rights and visibility issues at Euro 2020. Yes, it is a bit outside of our normal scope here at Full Time, but as someone who has tuned into much of this tournament, it's a very important topic and one that does apply here in the U.S. as well. Before we get to the news, just your quick reminder that you can subscribe to The Athletic for all of our women's soccer coverage and beyond, including full access to our UK team's work across European soccer. The Olympics are still around the corner. The appeal paperwork deadline is looming for the US women's national team players, and there is no break in the NWSL. So there is no stopping for now. You can subscribe for full access to The Athletic at theathletic.com slash full time. Just a quick news recap today, as mostly all eyes were on the send-off series and NWSL matches here, but the big news from the NWSL world was the resignation of Fareed Benstidi as head coach of OL Reign, who took the job in January 2020 and finished his time with six wins, nine losses, and five draws. Sandra and I will touch more on this in the show, but here's what OL Reign CEO Bill Predmore had to say in the club's release. We are appreciative of Fareed's many contributions to the club over the past 18 months and wish him the best in all his future endeavors. We have great respect for Fareed's talents and all he brought to the organization, but in our recent conversations, there was a collective agreement that new leadership was required to achieve the performance and results needed to satisfy our ambitions. Now, I haven't seen ESPN numbers as of the time I'm recording the show, but the first match against Mexico in the U.S. Women's National Team send-off series earned 496,000 viewers on FS1. And on Wednesday, Diana Matheson announced her retirement from the game, leaving as one of the key figures for Canada soccer over the past decade plus. Representing Canada has been the greatest honor of my life, she wrote. This decision has come somewhat easily as my body told me in no uncertain terms that it's time to hang up the boots. I'm ready though, as ready as can be, and I'm genuinely excited with what lies ahead. There is still so much to come for women's soccer in this country, and while I'm done wearing number eight on the field, I'm certainly not done with soccer. I can't wait to get started on what's next. See you all soon. All right, you all already know Sandra, but today's episode is particularly exciting since Sandra has a giant new work project to discuss. But before we get to that, of course, we're going to hit send off series and the U.S. Women's National Team, plus that disallowed goal, the NWSL and Fareed Bensidi's departure from the rain, and then her big news. So here's Sandra. Hi, Sandra. Hey, Meg. (laughs) So (laughs) the U.S. Women's National Team is on a plane to Tokyo right now, (sighs) on a plane to Japan. Um, I spent a strange amount of time this morning trying to zoom in to actually see what was on their t-shirts. I still can't read it. I have no idea. It's a mystery to me, unless someone actually posts a better photo. So... That's that's where my brain is at, where I'm just like, I'd, I'm just broken and I want to know what their their T-shirts say. Sorry to everyone um, <laughs> hopping on here expecting some really solid uh, social media investigative reporting, but we, yeah. 
or not we're blind uh, <laughs> just as blind as everyone else so right if you yep. have the beats let us know <laughs> just in terms of we're now through we've got the roster yep We've lived through the send-off series. They are on their way to Japan. Everything is like everything that we have been waiting for for so long is now behind us. And there is just an Olympic tournament waiting for us in roughly two weeks. Where where are you at right now? I'm I'll be frank, I'm still a little bit in disbelief. <laughs> um this has been this Olympic Games has been postponed for so long at this point. And I feel like the U.S. women's national team has been preparing for this for much longer than they anticipated that it's just kind of like, wait a minute, it's actually like happening. It's finally yeah. happening. There's going to be an Olympics that they can compete in and, and try to bring home the gold. Um, and I think for me, my my biggest like feeling about it, a takeaway of it is like, you know, when, when Vlatko took over the reins of this team and they just started doing what they were doing in 2019 and some of the, the form of certain players was like out of this world. Right. Like I think you and I can both remember like Kristen press being like lights out at the top of his new era under Vlatko. And it's just kind of funny because it's like, Oh, we're just back there again. Because <laughs> yeah we're going to the Olympics and Kristen press is the best forward on the top line. Like it was uh, always meant to be in the first place. So it's, some of it is like, there's still those question marks, right? Like people are kind of still having, um, you know, their questions and their concerns about maybe somebody like Julie Ertz and not being able to literally physically see with their own eyeballs, like <laughs> what, what she's capable of or are not capable of. Um, but I think everything that we've seen leading up to them heading off to Tokyo, I don't know how you look at this team, even with, let's just say, a Tobin Heath that's just coming back or or Julie Ertz that, you know, maybe is even at just at like 75%, who's probably better than anyone else's defensive midfielder uh, at 100%. So it's just, it's insane to think about how many delays there have been, how many setbacks there have been, and everything leading up to this moment still just feels like they're going to make some real noise in Tokyo. Yeah, I think it, it, your your point of, I mean, I remember going to those first couple of games with Vlako Andonovsky as head coach and thinking like, okay, like the new era begins, right? Um, and I think that there has been kind of well, there's always angst around this team, right? Like they can win every single game and there's always going to be angst around this team because it is not perfect. And some of that angst is also like there are always those internal expectations to do better. But I think watching that first half against Mexico on Monday evening, just watching some of that team build up, obviously we can talk about the disallowed goal in much greater detail, but watching what was happening on the field with players that I think, you know, plenty would, would say like were washed up and, and shouldn't be on this. Like that is what I think so many of us were looking for when Vlako Andonovsky took this job. And I think that's also what Vlako Andonovsky said. Even he's like, that is what this team should be. That is everything that I ever wanted to see out of this team. And to see that in the game before they go to Tokyo, is just like, we stress so much about them, but also if you take a step back and you actually like consider the state of this team compared to like the international game, it's just like, what are we, 
why are what we we're at an 11 out of 10 and we should probably be at a, like a three out of 10. It's an, it's insane. I also just, we're talking about it. So of course I'm going to be, like, let's talk about Mexico. Um, I just love that. Like their final two tune up games were against Mexico. I think, you know, the, the, the new arrivals or the semi-casual or the not super in the know fan might take a look at the two score lines and take a look at the histories of these teams and be like, what did you even get out of these games? But it was so great. Um, just a watching the two teams go ahead to head over two matches in five days, but also on the media side of things, I know for you and I like getting into those like pre and, and post game media availabilities and like being able to chat with black or hear what he had to say and, and certain players about going up against a team like Mexico and their new sort of very, very new stages, very early transition of their new era with their new head coach and Moni Vergara and sort of, knowing that they were going to be presented with a certain amount of challenges ahead of going to Tokyo. Like it just made me so happy that these two federations, these two teams agreed to have these games as a send off games before Tokyo. It just sort of felt like a real, a real defining moment in like a, in the CONCACAF era for like the women's side of the game. And it was yeah. really dope to see that happen. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we are very used to seeing Mexico on a regular basis, but also especially Mexico in CONCACAF tournaments up against, I mean, it sometimes like the groups don't always work, but I mean, I think there's a lot of history between these two clubs and to think about what is happening in Mexico between Liga Mex Femenil, right? The rise of some of these players. I mean, Maria Sanchez, obviously we could probably talk about for <laughs> an entire show, right? But to, to know that this is the start of kind of what I think everyone is hoping is a new era for Mexico and really thinking if they get the investment that they deserve, they're going to be a major player in a way that I don't know if people truly anticipate right now. Yeah. I think my, my initial reaction, I think just off of that first match between them, where I was just kind of like, this is a little bit surreal to watch the way that Mexico under Vergara were playing against the United States. And I think Becky Sabron actually alluded to it in that final match where she was just like, we weren't expecting them to come out and play the way that they played and yet they did what they did. And it was really great for us, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. trying to you know, prep for, for Tokyo. Um, so just when you're going up against the best in the world, you know, we hear that all the time against some of these teams that maybe are ranked outside of top 10, top 20, you know, even top 25, where it's like you want to go up against the best in the world because you want to know what that feels like and what that type of tempo is and what that type of scenario can present to you. But a lot of times what we see is some of these lower ranked teams really get high for these games, but they ultimately sort of revert to a bit of a bunker, trying to figure out a way to contain the United States. And they don't really come out and play. They don't really try to get involved in, you know, building up attack of their own. And we didn't see that from this Mexico side. They actually tried to do some stuff. They tried to get out, yeah. play some soccer. Um, you know, you referenced Sanchez. You know, I don't know if, if uh, what a player like Kelly O'Hara was expecting over these two games, but she maybe got a different look on that flank for sure. Um, going 1v1 you know, against her or somebody like Jimena Lopez, you know, ahead of the Tokyo games. And I think if, uh, 
you know, we hear about United States Women's National Team all the time talking about like uh, how they take a game, no matter what kind of game it is, and then try to build on it and expand. And we saw that from game one to game two. And um, it just again, it just felt like a real sort of defining moment. Like this is maybe like a series of games like come next cycle that we'll maybe take a look at and say, this is kind of where it started, you know, and this yeah. is kind of where we see where it's going. Yeah, I think. Mexico being able to take back the video of these two games and saying like, okay, here's where, you know, the spacing could have been it. Like, I think that they can take both big confidence things away from it, but also the much smaller details, like just knowing how, you know, even the U S women's national team approaches games and, and what Vlaco was saying about what they were working on in the second half of, okay, yes, we wanted to try out this five, four, one in the second half, but he's like, okay, even if Mexico was not necessarily, putting on that pressure, we still have ways to make sure that our five back is doing what they should be doing by looking at the spacing and looking at all of like, how are they moving off the ball? And these are two games now where Mexico gets to go back, look at this video and say, okay, how do we Mm -hmm. fully unlock someone like Kelly O'Hara? How do we fully unlock the spaces between, you know, when Tierna Davidson comes into the game and, and the center back pairings, right? Like, this is something that I think is going to be helpful yeah. in their their development. It was great. It was great to see. I mean, even for the United States. I mean, we lost our yeah. we lost our shit watching a, a set piece for drawn up for <laughs> sovereign. Like yeah. you know, this was we got to see stuff. We got to see yeah. cool stuff. Uh, you know, from from both uh, both both teams over these two matches, and uh, and it was it was dope. And I just love that everybody was really into it. There was a level, I think, that we both sort of saw like on our timelines and via socials where people were, of course, like very rah-rah U.S., like let's get the win and, um, you know, carry that momentum to Tokyo. But then on the other side, it was like, look at Mexico, you know, and I think people want that. I think the actual like hardcore fans, the casual fan base, people who have been around, they want to see that. Like they want to see um, genuine competitive fixtures and the CONCACAF region between between more women's teams, not just, you know, U.S. and Canada or yep. Costa Rica and Mexico, but like all of those teams collectively and maybe even trickling down to, to other places like, like like Panama and stuff like that. So um, it's exciting. It's exciting. I hope um, I hope maybe, you know, it, there will be another one, you know, post-Olympics, you know, it's a yeah. long year. So so we'll see. <laughs> I, I think we've got plenty of national team games coming up after the tournament. I would I would expect nothing less. I do want to talk about that disallowed goal. Ugh. And we we can start <laughs> this is the exact same reaction Vlako and Danovsky had. Um first I do want to talk about the fact that it was disallowed because watching it live in the stadium, it happened pretty much like where the press box is. It was directly below us and I just remember thinking like, oh, this looks very promising. And then, you know, like halfway through that play, Rose Lavelle basically gets murdered for the team. Um, And I thought, okay, maybe they're going to play advantage, right? And then we're watching and you could see from, it's off camera in the replay. I went back to double check. But as soon as the ball basically like left Tillman Heath's foot to go to prep, like, Chesky's arm is going up. It's already happening. Yeah, It's already happening. And I, I rewatched the video a couple times. And when she runs back into the frame, her arm is up. Yep. So the reason Vlako Andonofsky gave after the game, which, thank oh. God, Seth Young 
circled back around and was like, please tell us more because yeah. I was already muted by that point. Um, was that the ref inadvertently blew her whistle. Tough. Tough. <laughs> Tough and rough to UFF. I, we were all on the call and we were like freaking out <laughs> about it to yeah. Yeah. our own appropriate text messages. And it just, you know, I'm not even going to try to sit here and say that being a soccer official in the game, being an AR, being the center ref is not one of the most, if not the most difficult job on the pitch. On, yeah, I would not want on it. A game day. I think everybody's always like, oh, like the goalkeeper's going to have the hardest job on game day. Like, no, it's the officiating. The officiating, all the referees are going to have the hardest job on the pitch that day. Um, it's, it's, it's tough. It's not an easy position to be in. But I think uh, for some of us who've been here for a while and watching the officiating, whether it's been at the domestic level somewhere like NWSL, and then sort of seeing that within the international game, uh, it's it's frustrating. It's beyond frustrating. And I think it only gets highlighted when we see the type of goal that was robbed, you know, yeah. from from a moment like that. And there's there's always the uh, there's always, you know, the I don't know what it is. Maybe it is just the, the fact that this is a women's game. And maybe there's that sort of uh, lingering toxic positivity that goes around here uh, sometimes. But, you know, there's that moment of like, oh, there's got to be room for people to, to make mistakes and grow. But at the same time, you were talking about when when is when is enough is enough. <laughs> like, right. When is that moment, because we're talking about a game at the international level, like right. during the top ranked team in the world against one of their CONCACAF rivals. And it's like, there's a lot of that narrative in NWSL where it's like, well, it's domestic league. Everybody's still, you know, there needs to be room. Like people are still, and it's just like, okay, so you're telling me this is acceptable at this level? Like, that's going to be a hard no for me, dog. And I just, it was a, it like there, I saw at some point there was like praise for, her honesty about it which yeah sh sure like she could have lied and been like whatever <laughs> i saw what i saw it's offside yeah. <laughs> but she wasn't she was like you know she was yeah like, my bad uh yeah it happened and uh yeah. you guys won four zero good day you know yeah. um but it's still uh i think you know andonofsky said it best you know they, they were watching for certain things during this game and that goal that that beautiful beautiful disallowed goal <laughs> was was the thing yep. I think that was maybe missing over these stretch of like these last five games or so heading into the Olympics. So they had the summer series, they had these two friendlies against Mexico and like that type of goal. That yeah, just pure on like one touch team. Several players yeah. getting a touch on it and then a finish from Kristen Press. That was the thing that was like missing from these games. So uh, it's tough, uh, but like you like you said, and in the presser, he's like, "That was a goal for me, Chris and Press, and that was what he wanted to see." So you know, hopefully, we get to see something like that during the Olympics. Yeah, I mean, I think that again, when when Vlako Andonovsky <laughs> took over, we're expecting that. You know, I, I just keep thinking about Vlako Andonovsky saying like, "I want to set trends," right? And and I think I've, I said this on SiriusXM the other day, like, I don't know if that goal is a, a trend-setting goal, but it is also just 
such a good team goal. And it's not to say that the other goals weren't good because, I mean, the way that Lindsey Horan put her foot through that volley was also, like, I just remember watching the replay in the stadium and just being like, holy shit. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. We, I think that's part of it. We know how, like, individually superior these players can be just on their own in their own individual they could create their own shots like you know yep. big strong powerful shot is not uh unsurprising uh, to anyone i think on this team but seeing something like that the build up the quick one touch that's not something that you point to american women's soccer and say that's that's normal yeah there's a lot of praise about the physicality the athleticism do or die, the get out of my way, I'm going to get ahead on it. Because we, we saw one yeah. of those too. Carly Lloyd got a diving yep. you know. Yep. But the the beautiful buildup like that, it's not too, too often. It was really nice to see. I hope we see more of it in the Olympics. I hope we see more of it under Blacko's Black yep. reign. Long may he reign. <laughs> I mean, I think there's, there's much work for him ahead. You know, we have to get through the Olympics and then I will be just very fascinated to watch the next part of this upcoming cycle, which is also terrifying to think about just knowing, I think how, I think we, we were kind of struggling by the end of this (laughs) new cycle into the Olympics. Like it is, sometimes it is really tough to be like, what are we learning about this team just from what we can actually see. Right. And I think that when you get a tournament postponed, that especially becomes difficult. Sometimes games are just games, and that is what we're getting. But I do think that we're going to get some very instructive insight into his approach as we hit the next cycle. I do too. It's exciting. Uh, You know, as media, watching it, covering it, having to sort of analyze it, critique it at times. There was a long, a long, long time there, a period of time. There was a long stretch of time where it really did just sort of feel like we were kind of just spinning our wheels a little bit, you know, and all this prep going up to the Olympics and just sort of having, again, these this last string, like these last five matches or so, was really nice to sort of see that you take all that on. I had to talk. Yeah. It's exciting. Yeah. Everybody hang in there. There's going to be some <laughs> real fun stuff coming up. All right, let's move over to NWSL quickly. We've got a new top team in North Carolina. New. <laughs> new. Yeah. Um, you know, Orlando are still in the mix right now. It's not that they have necessarily lost a step, but now I think the question becomes, okay, players are gone for Olympics. What does this do for a few teams? Though, with Sydney LaRue in Orlando right at the moment, um, someone like Taylor Korniak, Courtney Peterson, I think, has stepped up defensively, right? Obviously, uh, assuming Allie Krieger's injury is not something more serious. Yeah. Um, Allie and Ashlyn are both still around, but, you know, we're now basically like a third of the way through the season. Um, I want to start us off with O.L. Rain, who have gone through some real... It's just been a very interesting start to the season. And now Freed Benstidi is out as head coach, which I personally think is probably the only move they could have made at this point. Yeah, I don't know how... um... You know, and it's it, it almost feels sort of un, a little bit unfair to to take 2020 into consideration um, just because of we were all there and we all saw <laughs> what it was. Challenge Cup was a handful of games for some of these teams. Unless you were Houston and Chicago, you got seven full games 
in the challenge cup and some people made, you know, some clubs made their exits early and um, sort of having fall series and just sort of having a stretch of maybe what they had possible, a possible eight games in 2020 to go off of. And then having these eight games to go off of in 2021, uh, I think it also sort of symbol his dismissal, you know, sort of also symbols, it symbolizes something I think that people aren't used to seeing in the National Women's Soccer League uh, is that, you know, the rain went into a partnership with Olympic Lyon and there is a certain standard there and there's yep. a certain level of expectation uh, when it comes to success or what you define as success or what you want your success to look and feel like. And I think it's pretty safe bet to say that it looks like wins. <laughs> looks like it looks like winning, and it looks like wins. Yeah, and uh, it just was not happening for this team under Ben City, which is was really an appointment, you know, sort of under the French side, and you can sort of see with his background and his history of coaching women's pro teams came from Europe, came from France. So, uh, you know, not getting the wins and then especially um, getting additional big names. And they weren't together yeah. for a long time. They didn't have a long time with him to, to pick up these wins. But you're talking about, you know, the arrival once again of, of Rose Lavelle. You're you're talking about adding short-term loan players in, in Buadi and Marozan, Les Omer, players who, again, standards, right, used to winning. Yep win yep. constantly and not being able to get that under uh under this head coach and apparently it was a mutual agreement for them to just uh, part ways which i mean can also be interpreted as they didn't they weren't doing well and now the coach someone has to answer for that and that typically means it's the coach um so it was a little uh i'm, I'm sure there are question marks there's other questions that people have where they want to know more wise or whatever, but I don't think it's unfair to just say it's it's it was driven by lack of results. I don't think it's unfair to say that at all. Yeah, I, I think it is going to be very interesting. Obviously, you have like Alana Cook also coming back over from PSG, right? Like they have a lot of pieces. It does honestly, in some ways, kind of remind me of the Portland Thorn season where they had a lot of big names that did not ever coalesce into something that truly made sense. Um, but I think also what we have seen in the NWSL is that it is very easy to turn things around very quickly, right? And whether that's season to season where teams have had immediate turn, I mean, you look at Orlando Pride, right? Or just putting together like a real string of results. If they go on some kind of streak right now, you know, if they they have big name players that are going to be there all summer because their teams are not in the Olympics. Yeah. So... You've got some real benefit. Like, yes, you lost Rose Lavelle, but you still got Marzan. Yeah, <laughs> and there's midfield. all those, that, 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 that's that's so important to bring up, even if they're not the big name players, because there's a lot of question marks around the team as a whole. Like, I think um, people who who pay attention to the league look at their roster and they see somebody like you know like a like a Sofia Huerta, and they're like, okay, like she's she's doing things, and that's a player who can make things happen on the pitch. You know, but there were, you know, for me, like watching these games, it's like, you know, where where does Bethany Balser fit, you know, and under this head coach and, and in these starting 11s. And there was this weird moment of time where there were starts and not starts and coming off the bench and and somebody like um, and then we saw sort of like a, a, a pivot at times, like with with Pruitt 
and 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 Balser, it's like, well, maybe she'll get the start this week and then she'll come off the bench for her and then vice versa. Yeah. And then the following week will be that, you know, we've seen them make a trade. They traded away Jasmine Spencer, you know, and then and, and within that, we've also seen less of Ziara King, you know, uh, yeah. where is Ziara King? <laughs> yep. Awesome. Yeah, it is like OLRN is so interesting to me because it sometimes feels like they just want to have like 11 central midfielders on the field yeah. at any given and time. <laughs> and then there's a the question of tactics, right? While you're looking at the roster and the names where it's like, how do we fit these pieces and how do we fit them in there and try to get the best performances? It's also like, you know, tactics, like what's going on, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. You cannot have 11 central midfielders yeah, on no. the field at any given time with maybe like a goalkeeper on one. It's just. It, it always felt like they were just kind of going like, oh, we'll all clump into the yeah. middle. Yeah. But also part of that, too, is when you think about their home field, it's a super narrow field, Very right? Narrow. Like, there's a lot of factors here. Yeah. Anyway, we, we can move on from all rain. Is there any other team that is standing out to you in terms of dark horse, maybe like making a real run of it through the summer? You know, maybe a, a Washington Spirit Gotham FC still have only yeah. lost one game? I have a, you know, to start this season over on the CBS side of things, when we were previewing things, I was asked to select like a dark horse and I chosen Washington spirit as mine, uh, just because heading into 2021, they weren't the same team that they were in 2020, the team that we sort of saw really finally start to click and put some things together. You know, they traded away Rose Lavelle. They ended up getting different pieces in, in O'Hara and Sonnet. Um, and then drafting somebody like Trinity Rodman, you know, were we going to continue to see the development of Ashley Sanchez, you know, within this team? And uh, they went on a very impressive, you know, five game unbeaten streak of their own after kind of stumbling out of the gate a little bit, you know, early in the season. But I think closing out the the first quarter of this, you know, um, of the season, I think they can really, really be satisfied with some of some of their results. I think there's moments where we're watching the spirit where it's like there will be a game where you're like, oh, this is what they're trying to do systematically, mm-hmm. systematically or tactically. Yeah. And then there'll be another week where it's like, oh, I was incorrect. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. I was wrong. Yeah. Um, but it's been it's been a lot of fun, though. And I think that's a, that's a big one for us. Sometimes when we're watching some of these games, we're like, who's going to be fun? Who's going yeah. to do fun stuff? Who's going to do cool right. stuff? And it's like it's so exciting to see. Um, week in and week out, one of their fours, or if not all of them, sort of connecting and, and getting on the score sheet in some capacity. Um, it's you know, it's it's tough to see a young young player like Robin apparently have to be struggling with some back issues this early in the season um, because what she's been, the performances that she's been stringing together week to week for this team have been so so impressive. Um, and I think one of the concerns around that player. Coming into the draft, uh, you know, when you were looking at club draft boards and stuff like that was was the fact that, you know, she was such a young player and she was probably going to need some time to get acclimated to to the league and just being a professional soccer player in general. Um, but talking to her on, you know, background and just sort of getting her perspective on things and, you know, hearing her talk about her relationship with somebody like Ashley Sanchez and how important that's been to her development and really Andy Sullivan, quite frankly, uh, their chemistry is really starting to break through has been really, really dope. She doesn't talk like a rookie. She doesn't talk like a player who's 19 years old. She's very uh, amiable to, to coaching, you know, from what we hear on background as well. Uh, they give her the numbers, they give her the stats and she's like, no, nah, I got to do better. You know? So she's yeah. someone who is uh, 
more than willing to be coached up. So it's been exciting to, to watch her play. So my, my hope was that they were going to be a team to make, uh, make a strong run during this Olympic stretch because of, you know, having somebody like Andy Sullivan, someone who's been in the pool for the U S women's national team, not going to the Olympics, you know, a young attacking duo and in, in Sanchez and in Rodman actually Hatch has been dealing with some, some injury things. And I think that might be the thing that they actually have to contend with. It's not so much the, the competition that's going to be around them, but managing those injury bugs going through this next stretch, similar to Orlando, they're losing big pieces, you know, but they have uh, sort of bought themselves a lot of points, a lot of cushions that maybe if they falter during these next few weeks, they'll still sort of be okay. If they can manage to get a result here or there, even if they drop a couple losses, which they have already <laughs> in two losses. So I think that's what it's going to come down to for a lot of these teams, whether it is somebody like a Washington spirit that we're kind of keeping our eye on a Gotham FC that we're keeping on our eye, our eye on those sort of dark horse teams that maybe weren't always in the mix, but we really feel like in 2021, they were, they are now going to be in the mix. And I still feel like they will be considering the table and the playoff picture has changed from the top four teams to, to six teams allowed. Um, so I think those teams still will be in the mix, but I think this particular Olympic stretch of time is going to be that combination of like, Oh, let's take, let's see our depth. Let's see what they're made of. And also trying to pick up those injury bugs because after six, seven, eight weeks of, of consistent yeah. playing time at coming off of a 2020 where these players are no longer used to having that regular play, their bodies are going to start to feel it. And we're starting to see that more often and more frequently in these injury reports. So uh, it really is, I think, during this stretch going to be about the depth and the health. Just to to wrap up our NWSL talks, we've got Dark Horse. I do want to touch on Portland very quickly after they just picked up uh, another big 2 no win over Louisville. But we finally saw Olivia Moultrie on the field, um, which I think got a number of us on Zoom <laughs> that night as yeah. well. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's it's hard to read into basically the 10 minutes that she got. But right now, you know, I, I thought Mark Parsons' answer to the question that I asked him just in terms of expectations was honestly very, it, it honestly kind of reminds me of, I think, how folks are also approaching Trinity Rodman, too, right? Where you have to give these players space to develop. Yep. Uh, hopefully we have learned our lessons on the women's side, too, from someone like Freddie Adu of putting pressure so hopefully yeah this is this is the time though like this is this is the era like this is the olympic stretch where we're talking about you know where we might see x y or z player get those minutes um and i mean even even the minutes that she got against you know a race a race side where there wasn't too much time left in the game where, yeah, it's that two goal lead and where anything can happen, right? Most dangerous scoreline in soccer, but we're talking a lot about depth and this Portland side is one of those teams. I think that where that's going to show and shine during this Olympic portion of the schedule, they've got huge pieces, veteran pieces on that team to go with a lot of young pieces Players like Emily Menges, who picked up an assist during that game. You know, somebody like Rocky Rodriguez, who's who's a veteran now of this league. Angela Salem. Salem, you know, and it was it was really great. You know, yeah, she's a, Olivia Moultrie's 15 years old and getting her start as a professional soccer player in this league and getting on, you know, the media call with her. It was about as much as you would expect. It was an excited 15 year old starting her pro career. So there was a lot of, you know, quick answers and excitement. You know, you pick up a win. These players, all the players are high off of a the adrenaline of a win and 
And that was, you know, double for for somebody like like Maltree. But I thought she held her own in her first press conference with us. And um, it was nice to be able to get in there and sneak a question about Angela Salem specifically, yeah. because I thought it was kind of a little a little iconic, a little bit of a of a transitional moment there, you know, for her to come on into that game specifically for somebody like Angela Salem, who who has such a great, great story of her own in yep. this league, you know, such a, a veteran domestic player, you know, really, I mean, no pun intended, but really receiving her roses now, you know, <laughs> over in, in, in Portland, you know, yep. and, and, and I think maybe really reminding people about like who she is and, and how she can run a midfield, you know, because let's be frank, you know, in, in the past, when you were a b- part of a bottom table team, even if you were rip, shout out Boston breakers, rip, We'll never forget you Um, when you're part of a bottom table team. You know, maybe you're not getting a lot of attention as a player, even if you are good getting in strong performances because people aren't paying attention to the bottom table teams, you know, and it's uh, it's nice to sort of see her arrival and her reintroduction, maybe to some folks, uh, you know, who were unfamiliar with her in the in the past. And so her coming off in the 83rd minute with Moultrie coming out in her place, I was like, man, this is is kind of dope actually in terms yeah. of like a historical yeah. significance a little bit you know and 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 Mulcher was great about it she was like it, it meant the world she was like it was like a perfect world moment to come on yeah. for somebody like yeah. Salem who she credits as like helping her as a teammate and, and getting prepared for this type of moment so um I'm sure we'll see some more of Moultrie um uh but I think if under a head coach like like Parsons who's smart about it um we're probably going to continue to see her in this type of role maybe like yeah. off the bench getting restricted minutes and just sort of seeing what she can bring to the table now during this particular stretch of a season. Right. No, it is. And I, I think that was a whole part of the, the legal argument too, is that this was actually kind of forcing the judge's decision because there, there is a chance to actually earn minutes with players gone for the Olympics. So, all right, Sandra, you've got some personal, well, work news. <laughs> so <laughs> your, your personal news is that you're not going to sleep anymore. Your work news is my work news is, yeah, no, it's true. I'm, I'm excited about it. There's, uh, you know, we've been working on some, some things over at CBS and it's so dope talking about all this NWS, NWSL stuff with you because it's, it's regular season chatter. Like, you know, we, we haven't had a regular season since 2019 and it's nice to sort of get back in the, in the spring of things. And, Ahead of 2020, you know, NWSL and CBS, they announced this broadcast partnership and everybody was really excited about it. Those of us in the media were excited about it. But when I got brought on (laughs) ahead of the Challenge Cup, I was personally super excited (laughs) about it. Um, But this is really the first year uh, where both the league and their broadcast partner have a regular season under their belts and are kind of walking this journey together of what a 24 game regular season means um, in this type of partnership. So it's, it's been incredibly, incredibly dope to sort of be behind the scenes and producing different types of content. And that includes working on all kinds of projects and that includes another (laughs) women's soccer podcast. So uh, when you're done listening to full time, please do your girl a favor (laughs) And uh, wherever you listen to your podcast or wherever you grab them, whether it's on Apple, Spotify, wherever, uh, go ahead and find Attacking Thirds because Attacking Third is the newest 
show on the CBS Sports Podcast Network, and it is a show that is going to be dedicated to coverage of NWSL, coverage of the U.S. Women's National Team, and cover of all kinds of uh, different international events all over the globe. I'm very excited about it. It is going to be a tri-weekly show, so that means people will be getting three episodes a week about yeah. women's soccer. So if you miss it on X day, don't worry. There's two more chances to get in the show uh, during the week. And, and that's what you're alluding to is my personal news of lack of sleep, which um, I, let me tell you, it's perfect that this is happening at the Olympics because it's like, if you're going <laughs> to lose sleep. You really just jump in and lose it. So yep. like jump in and lose it with a tri-weekly podcast and an Olympics that's taking place in Tokyo while you live in Chicago. So yeah. I'm really excited about it. Um, I'm going to be co-hosting uh, co it alongside my colleague, uh, Lisa Roman, who's been uh, very active in the CBS side of things. She is was a producer for the Kegolasso show with Luis Miguel Echegaray, um, which is a very popular soccer show uh, on, on CBS. Um, so we'll be co-hosting it. And the attacking third component is just a play on, you know, rotating guests that, that we'll be having. So there will always be um, an additional voice, a third voice, uh, whether it's somebody like uh, Lori Lindsay or, or Nellie Wagner or current players, former players, current and former coaches, et cetera. Um, we're excited to get these guests on. Maybe not so excited to go through the booking process because that can be <laughs> a pain. I know what I know. You know about that life. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, but uh, I'm I'm very, very excited about it. I'm very, very proud to be able to finally like unleash this <laughs> to the world because it's it's been a process. It's been a definite work in process. And there's always those moments where you're like, oh, are we going to be able to get this out in time? Because the goal was to, you know, get it out, you know, by the Olympics. Um, but it's been it's been really nice. And um, the response has been overwhelmingly positive. So that's always very good. There's yeah. always that nervous moment when you sort of introduce a project like this to the world, in particular to, to our audience, right? Um, whom I adore, you know, whom I, who yeah. I, whom I love and adore, really. I mean, the women's soccer audience, the American women's soccer audience is uh, an audience that is like very, very passionate. Um, you know, they're very intense about the soccer that they consume here, um, you know, when and how and if they can consume it, right? Um, you know, and I love that about them. And uh, there's always, you know, they're, they're also an audience that, you know, has expectations and they want to hold, you know, hold the people in the space, you know, accountable. And that that goes all across the board, whether it's players, you know, whether it's coaches, front office folk, you know, media who cover it, you know, and that's that's important. That's important to have that. Um, and it helps sort of uh, guide us and shape you know, our content and our projects, the way that we want to to go ahead and launch them. So the fact that it's been, you know, so warmly received, even with just a trailer right now has, is really, really dope. And I'm really excited um, for when we finally drop our episodes. Our first one is going to drop on, on July 12th. And uh, yeah, I, I'm really excited about it. And I'm so thankful to you and our working relationship. Um, you know, one of the, you know, talk about a, a lot about, support in the space and what that means and what that looks like. And I think that's one of my other favorite things that I love about uh, what we do is that it makes us stand out and is so different from the men's side of the game is how really kind of collaborative and supportive our space can be. Because one of the, one of the first things that happened was Meg immediately texted me with a lot of love and support and congratulations. <laughs> and I was like, you know what you should do? 
you should come hang out with me and talk about this podcast. And um, that doesn't happen. That might not happen in a lot of other spaces, yeah. but it does happen here in this woman's soccer space. So I'm very, very grateful to it. And uh, I'm excited. I'm excited to, to walk this journey alongside you, too. All right. Well, I send you all the good vibes for booking people three times a week because I only do it once a week and ooh, it can be an adventure. But now also stuff works with me, so there's no escaping. So that is always... There we go. <laughs> That's the trick is you always have someone who is forced to work with you. So yep. that is my only pro tip. <laughs> um, Sandra, thank you for your time. As always, obviously, everyone should go subscribe to Attacking Third. I have already done it on both Apple and Spotify because I tend to flip back and forth depending on my mood. Right but um, yes, thank you. And I'm sure we will hear plenty from you throughout the Olympics. I will see you in Portland in like a month ish. So. we'll do something we'll do something around then too <laughs> yeah all right sounds good thank you sandra thank you everyone please go subscribe to attacking third especially while you are in the app right now i'm assuming you're in the app next up adam crafton of the uk desk here at the athletic is here to walk us through one of the main subplots of the euro 2020 tournament uefa and rainbow everything leading to a bit of a fight over queer visibility in the tournament particularly when it comes to certain countries Here's Adam. All right. So, Adam, Euros are, are very much underway. Semifinals are happening. We're recording on Tuesday. So uh, Italy and Spain is happening first and then England on Wednesday. But there has been this whole, there's been a lot of side plots to the Euros. But one whole side plot of the Euros is kind of how UEFA has handled pride flags like there are so many pieces to this first I was hoping for folks who might be following it more casually or it has not honestly gotten a lot of play I don't think in terms of what's been happening on the broadcast there's not been a huge amount of discussion about how UEFA has or has not been handling homophobia the pride all of this kind of stuff on our broadcast so can you maybe first give a there's a lot happening, I understand. So I, this is a terrible question for me to ask. But like, what is the the short version of kind of what has happened throughout the tournament so far? Yeah, well, if we take a very broad brush approach, um, obviously June was was Pride Month, um, recognised globally, um, and I think there was you know before the tournament started, you know I don't really think certainly anyone in that I was speaking to in LGBT circles around sport were really expecting that the Euros would have any kind of moment in, in relation to LGBTQ issues because European soccer just simply has not had moments um, and generally doesn't engage very highly with it. So what, what started to happen was some of the, the this tournament, Euro 2020, played in 2021, um, is played all over Europe. So there's games in, in London, in Spain, in Italy, um, Scandinavia, but also in Eastern Europe. So in Russia and Azerbaijan and Hungary. And yeah, for, the, you know, for the most basic explainer, LGBT rights and policies have severely deteriorated in, in Eastern Europe, in certain Eastern European countries in recent years. And Hungary... Is, is the most recent example um, of, a, of a government that has imposed uh, policies that are flagrantly homophobic. So for example, um, just, just two or three weeks ago, the Hungarian government introduced a policy that was 
uh, banning the promotion of materials relating to LGBT people or representation of LGBT people um, to, to anyone under the age of 18. So that meant the removal of support materials from schools. Um, it meant that you couldn't show, represent a, a gay person on a TV show before the watershed at night. Um, and then they tapped this policy change onto a, onto a, um, a law that was to do with uh, child sex abuse. So therefore conflating homosexuality with paedophilia. So we talk about the, the oldest tropes in the box. That's the, that's the backdrop. Then the games start in, in Hungary, in Budapest, and there are a section of Hungarian fans who are, you'll always, they tend to be men, they tend to be dressed in black shirts, um, quite intimidating, and they have decided, you know, that anti-LGBT is one of their new things, that they are under siege from rainbow ideology, um, is the way that they describe it. So at the game against Port, I think it was the first game that they had against Portugal. There was a picture of fans in the stadium raising the banner, which said anti-LGBT. So it couldn't have been more clear. I mean, this was a homophobic message. Now, a few days passed and, you know, UEFA were pretty slow. There was no, you know, there was no outright message of solidarity. There was no message of condemnation. And then I think four or five days later, um, UEFA announced that they, because uh, then Hungary played France and there was further issues in that game. And UEFA announced they're um, going to launch an investigation. But again, there was no statement of condemnation or solidarity really at that stage. On the same day, and this was the first Sunday of the tournament, um, the German goalkeeper Manuel Neuer had been wearing a rainbow armband uh, because it was Pride Month and to show solidarity. Um, then stories started emanating from Germany that Sunday afternoon to say that UEFA were investigating whether this was acceptable, that Manuel Neuer could wear a rainbow armband because it may be deemed to be a political message. So that afternoon became a huge storm on social media and also a lot of panic at UEFA as this broke out and was being confirmed by the German Football Association before they eventually then put out a statement to say, yeah, we, we looked into it and we've decided, in fact, the LGBT the rainbow armband is okay. Um, but it triggered a response, and that response led to the mayor of Munich um, in Germany wanting to light up the Allianz Arena um, for the match between Germany and Hungary um, in rainbow colours. Um, and he said that was a direct response to this homophobic policy that had been um, introduced in Hungary. And this was also against the backdrop of European Union leaders strongly condemning um, the change of policy um, in Hungary. So UEFA then intervene uh, again and say, actually, no, you can't do this. Um, you can't light up the stadium in this way because it's a political response. And they say that they have a non-partisan position. So that's where it all started. And then on the night, Germany play Hungary. They draw 2-2. Leon Goretzka equalizes late on and he um well i mean he celebrates with a love heart celebration that was clearly a message of lgbt solidarity he tweeted about it after the game and it was you know it was a real moment and then you had throughout that week you know different players from different nations coming out in support and making statements of support and it was all really quite rare um for european soccer and pretty nice 
And then there was a couple of issues uh, once we got into the round of 16, because the sponsors, so there's the LED pitch side advertising, where you have sponsors such as Heineken Beer and TikTok and Booking.com, Travel Website and Volkswagen. And they decided what we want to do is we want to have rainbow advertising in the stadiums. And UEFA approved that for the round of 16. So that was actually in Budapest as well, which was seen as quite a strong message. Um, but then there was issues in the fan zone in Budapest where uh, the Netherlands were playing against the Czech Republic and a fan had his rainbow flag taken off him. UEFA denied that that was their instruction, said it was the local authorities that were to blame. Um, and then there was also an incident in Azerbaijan um, a couple of days ago. I'm trying to remember what game that was. It was um, Denmark. Denmark. So there was the, yeah. the game between Denmark and Czech Republic again, where there was a fan in the stands. The, da uh, the Danish, Danish supporter had a pride flag and you saw stewards in the ground go and basically two of them manhandle him and take the pride flag away. UEFA since have said that it wasn't their instruction, um, though they also said in a statement that um, the fan was inebriated. But even if he is inebriated, I don't really understand why that would be fixed by taking his pride, his pride flag away from him <laughs> as though um, gay rights equal uh, intoxication. But that's, that's the general story of where we're up to. Um, I've probably forgotten things along the way, but feel free to ask anything. Yeah, no, and and the, it was the, really that that incident with the two uh, Denmark fans with the pride flag being taken away, where I was like, I have to. I sent mm. you a, a message on Slack pretty much yeah. within an hour of that happening because reading that UEFA statement, I was just like, these are two very different ideas. If a fan is intoxicated in the stands, you would assume that he would be escorted yeah. to it like a different location, right, or removed, or someone. But to take a flag away and then have that statement be like, well, he was drunk it's just like well what is the flag doing yeah, yeah. <laughs> the flag, I mean, I, is the flag passing them beers like what yeah. are you <laughs> and, and the, the statement also said that it was a response to local fans becoming aggressive towards them so again and, and therefore the response yep. seemed to be uh, well if people are homophobic we better take the homo away um yeah <laughs> Um, yeah, again, leave the phobic. The phobic is great. Yeah, we love it. Phobic, they can stay, but take take the yeah. uh, take the homo away. So yeah, yeah it was it was all um, it's all been pretty. It's been these weird peaks and troughs of like real moments of optimism from the you know from players and coaches and federations, uh, national federations, and then also these really sort of dispiriting moments of just where money is talking, where you have host host countries whose governments have hugely questionable records on human rights, which we might get into. And, and you also have re just really inadequate responses, in my opinion, by UEFA as the, as the governing body of European football. Yeah, I mean, there is definitely a lot to dig into here. I mean, the role of money, obviously, the fact that sponsors are also using the power of their sponsorship to try to also essentially have you know, at least some attempt at political speech within some of these spaces. But I, I guess first, you know, you wrote a very good long article kind of saying, okay, this one rainbow armband is kind of challenging this new cozy relationship between UEFA and some of these countries that are absolutely starting to, you look at the human rights issues that yeah. are involved and it's like, oh, okay. I mean, and granted, obviously this is nothing really that new in the world of global soccer. I mean, we think about where the next World Cup is going to yeah. be, and there's obviously a lot <laughs> there yeah. as well. But 
just in terms of, I guess, that relationship between UEFA and places like Hungary, places like Russia, right, where there is, a, a you know, money is definitely involved in this relationship, but also knowing the fact that UEFA was considering Budapest simply because they could probably get more people into the stand, so taking games yeah. away from, from Wembley and moving them to Budapest. I mean, it's hard not to think that the bottom line is always just going to be money, but I guess my question for you is, is there any... <laughs> I mean, I, I think I know what the answer is, but like, is there any realm in which of a governing body like UEFA might actually think there might be more money in doing the right thing? Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. This sort of start. Well, I mean, look, if it, <laughs> LGBT rights is not a new a new issue, right? But right. I think discussions around this started certainly on the Athletic, around the time of the Europa League final between Manchester United and Villarreal, which was played in Poland in Gdansk. And there was a major incident of homophobia towards an LGBT sports team um, in Gdansk only a few weeks before the final. Um, and amid a rising tide of homophobia in Poland, as well as Hungary and Belarus and Russia, it's all sort of the same story of these sorts of inverted commas, strongmen leaders who wrap themselves around the flag and who see any deviation from what they consider to be the norm to be a challenge to the national values, um, you know, which is not a new concept for, polit for politicians to use, um, but it's definitely intensified in relation to LGBT people in Eastern Europe in the last five or six years, because before that you probably had the migrant crisis where you had issues in Syria uh, and Libya, which meant there was a huge amount of migrants coming into Europe. So they would be the people that were being demonized at the time. Conversations around that slowed down. So now LGBT people are in the, are in the firing line. Um, not to say that immigration is, you know, has, yeah. has a free pass either at the moment, but, but that, that's like a bit of the background. And I think what happened with UEFA is they, they, a few years ago, um, Michel Platini stopped being the UEFA president and Alexander Seferin came in and he's a Slovakian guy. Um, was he Slovenian? He's a Slovenian guy. Um, <laughs> double, we'll double check that. Uh, Seferin is a Slovenian guy. And, you know, I think part of his motivation when he came in, which, you know, as president of UEFA is right, is I want to grow the game across Europe. It's not... Football isn't just for Real Madrid, Barcelona, Manchester United and Liverpool and England, Spain, Italy and France and Germany. There's more to it. And I think that's quite, you know, that's quite a noble pursuit. Now, where this starts to become an issue is when players and fans and coaches enter the realm of activism and enter the realm of solidarity, because that becomes a challenge that UEFA have to square off. You know, can we balance growing the game in Russia or in um, or in Azerbaijan or, or or Poland or Hungary, with you know the possibility that there might be a male gay player in it in a couple of years' time who needs to feel safe in the environment, and certainly LGBT fans um, attending games and also women's tournaments where you where we have um, LGBT people involved. So that that's the incompatibility that that has emerged. Um, where it's becoming a little bit uncomfortable is that the relationship seems quite cosy. You know, there's a lot of, there's been meetings between Seferin and Vladimir Putin of Russia um, with 
Lukashenko, who is the president of Belarus. He's basically, you know, he's referred to as the last dictator of, of Europe. He's been in power for 27 years. Only a few weeks ago, a passenger plane um, was, taken, was, was brought to the ground um, and dissidents were arrested from that passenger plane um, and, Bel- and the Belarusian government has been blamed for that by pretty much everyone, uh, although they deny it. Um, and, you know, also the Azerbaijan president and, uh, and also Viktor Orban, the Hungarian president, who has made the growth of football a cent- almost like a centrepiece of his, of his image. Um, and UEFA has been a sort of a pretty malleable facilitator for these people who want to use sport in some ways to to bolster their sense of their sense of nation. Um, and I think, you know, I don't have an issue really actually with events being hosted in these places. Um, and then the same with Qatar next next year in the World Cup. My issue is more if you're going to host in these places, then you have then as a major organization like UEFA or FIFA, you have an obligation to use the platform that you have to, to challenge and to spotlight. Um, and to try and, and bring progressive change. Otherwise, like, what's the point here? You know, yeah. um, otherwise you give them all the proceeds without any of the, the criticism. Yeah, I think that's also a very interesting conversation that happens here in the United States too. I mean, you think about uh, states now that are passing anti-trans bills kind of left and right. I mean, the U.S. soccer just put one of the first World Cup qualifiers in Nashville, Tennessee, that state just passed like very terrible legislation that affects trans people. And that's kind of the question of, do you still go into these spaces? Do you still bring economic benefit? And if so, how do you leverage that with your influence to say, well, certain standards have to be met? I mean, I think about the World Cup um, hosting procedure. And granted, I'm more familiar with the women's side, but I mean, the places that are trying to bid for the World Cup, there are certain standards that have to be met, right? Like there is in the in the report, they have to go through environmental factors, human rights factors, all of this kind of stuff. And that is put on the report card of like, what is the actual status of this country right now? And you would like to think that that governing bodies like FIFA or UEFA or in, in our case, US soccer are considering that and saying, okay, if we go into this space, what can we actually sure. do? But again, I think what we have kind of seen just throughout the course of of everything is that players are always going to be further along, right? Mm -hmm. It's kind of like you go up the ladder and players are going to be the most further along. Teams are going to be behind them. The countries are going to be behind them. And then the governing bodies Mm -hmm. are generally going to be dead last. And that sort Mm -hmm. of like, how far do we go? Because we've got a lot of competing interests to balance. So... I guess, you know, next next is just kind of for UEFA. I mean, is there a path out of this that you can see? At least it, it like just even looking at Euros where we keep having all of these incidents, Germany obviously has been pushing the hardest mm-hmm. out of out of anyone. Do you see that kind of adversarial relationship continuing with some of the more progressive countries pushing UEFA to like actually maybe think about what they're doing right at the moment yeah yeah i mean i I can't see it being a sort of like a concerted campaign i think everything that's happened has been very reactionary and instinctive i think that's what's made it really brilliant actually and quite quite moving really that you know that the response we saw from leon goretzka that wasn't part of 
you know, you could probably hire 15 different marketing agencies and PR agencies to come up with a plan to further LGBT representation in football, and they wouldn't achieve what was achieved by that pure moment of reaction and instinct. Um, I think you, you, know, you make a really interesting point about, you know, giving games to, uh, to states in, in America that, that have um, problematic policies around trans people. And, you know, I think, you know, one of the counterpoints, which I think is very fair is, well, look, I mean, you've given the final to Wembley and, you know, there's been some pretty bad stuff go on in Britain over the last few years. So we have to be, I think we have to be a bit careful about being, you know, holier than thou in our attitude. You know, if you look any, if you look at any country, you'll find, you'll find a reason. Um, I, I think where it's, where it's quite uncomfortable is that, you know, with LGBT people, that, that is a huge issue in men, in men, in men's football. It is a huge underspoken about, um, unresolved issue um, and the governing bodies have an obligation to be doing everything in their power to create the most inclusive environment possible um, and by definition if you are taking it to places where individuals will see signs and be met by people who are going to be intimidating you are failing to provide a safe environment for those fans and those players so even on like the most basic point of, of HR you know these, these governing bodies are, are failing um, and and, and that, that's, that's a major concern. I think the other point is like, you know, at what point do you take the view? So my, my view on Qatar, for example, is, okay, like I don't agree at all with their policy about what they would do if I'd grown up in Qatar because it wouldn't end, it wouldn't end very well for me at all, right? But what I do see is a country that is connecting more with the West, that is you know, that has had a huge amount of criticism about working conditions rightly, that has actually now improved those conditions in response, not enough, a long way to go, but is at least engaging with that conversation. Um, and I, I th therefore I, I see a greater value of engagement with a country such as Qatar, which is coming, you know, which is a very young nation coming a very long way. And can we take them on that journey with us? Whereas a country such as Hungary, Russia, Belarus, it's almost like, well, you know, being gay was decriminalized quite a long time ago in these countries. And it all seemed like things might get a bit better, particularly Poland and Hungary. And now all of a sudden we just have this like real turn back the other way. And I feel like what is the value here, therefore, of engagement? Because when these, you know, when other countries have criticized Hungary, like they've just gone in on themselves. They've just, they've not engaged with it in a positive way. It's just been, you know, more stuff about the danger of the rainbow ideology and yeah. you, don't, you don't understand the Hungarian nation and all this sort of stuff. Um, so, look, I mean, I may be rose tinted in some way about, you know, that, that Qatar could be a little, a little bit more encouraging, as weird as that sounds, because the laws are stricter. But with Hungary and Russia and Belarus, it's just like, where are we get where are we going with this what is uefa trying to achieve with this because you know i mean i've asked repeatedly you know in those meetings that uefa hold with with presidents and prime ministers are these things brought up and if they're not brought up then they should be brought up um then again i'm not sat in a room opposite vladimir putin i imagine it's quite scary um <laughs> so um but that's why alexander seferin receives a lot of money each year
Yeah, I, I do want to ask about the role of maybe outside forces, because I think of something like Fairnet, right? Yeah. Fair Network, and their role that they might be able to play, but also just kind of knowing again how insulated something like UEFA can be. Obviously, public pressure, I think, really has done something, though. Obviously, again, like it is coming from much higher levels than just social media outrage, right? Yeah. But having kind of Germany do all this pushback, but there has been real like outcry about some of the stuff that has happened, especially, I mean, the rain rainbow armband investigation kind of immediately got this, like, what are you, do like, there are much larger things you could be thinking about right now. And also you yourself as an organization have tweeted like, this tournament is going to be friendly to gay yeah, people. Like yeah. it is. <laughs> no, no, I think you're right. And I think, what is so striking? I mean, I listened to a great podcast a few weeks ago on, I, I never know how to pronounce it. Is it 538 or 538? 538, yeah. 538, there you go. Um, but it was a podcast basically about how same-sex marriage, the discussion around it had almost transcended the political divide now. Um, not, you know, I'm not saying that absolutely everyone in America, um, you know, is supportive of same-sex marriage, but it crossed the... Republican democratic divide, the broad consensus is, you know, this is something that should happen. And it was just sort of telling the story of how those social attitudes had changed over time. It's absolutely fascinating. But to make that relevant, it is in most Western countries now, that is the consensus. Most Western countries can't really understand, you know, a lot of vast majority of people now are broadly okay with, with same-sex couples and um and same-sex marriage and things like that. And that's not to say there's not moments of homophobia. Of course there are. But we have, to a large extent, we are winning that argument. We are winning that argument. So I think when, when you see something like we're investigating the mere presence of a rainbow armband, it's just like, what the fuck, right? It, it, <laughs> it, it just doesn't make sense. Um, and I don't know whether that's, maybe that's like my bubble of living in like, London and mixing with people in Soho and all that sort of thing, sh showing out and my privilege, therefore, being very fortunate. But it, it just wasn't in tandem with, with public opinion across those countries. And I think that explains, you know, this real divide. And, it, and, and look, this divide isn't just football. This divide is if you, I mean, I really hope our listeners aren't bored enough to go and study the European Union in depth. But if you go and study what's happening in the European Union at the moment, there is a, a real grown divide between countries such as France and Germany and the Netherlands um, and those countries in East, that on the sort of what you'd call the old Eastern Bloc on, in relation to LGBT rights. It is a, a, one half of it is going in a, a positive uh, trajectory and the, the other half is going, is going backwards. And, and it's, it's, a very, it's a very interesting thing. And it, it's not confined to football. And it does leave you for, as a governing body of the whole of Europe that's being held to different standards in different countries in a difficult place. Like, I do have sympathy for that. Like, you know, it is not an easy thing to square the interests of Vladimir Putin and uh, Belarus's Lukashenko with Angela Merkel and Macron and um, the Dutch prime minister, whose name escapes me, who was calling for Hungary, you know, to be basically kicked out of the EU last week. Um, in response to this new homophobic law. So I do have sympathy for you, Afer. This is not easy, but this then comes back to this whole thing of, 
I think what LGBT people and also, and what different minority groups do as well, it's like with the whole discussion around taking the knee, people are always saying, oh, it's not political. It's not political. And we say it's not political because we want to kind of take people who are skeptical of it on that journey with us. It's almost like a comms trick that we play. We're like, this isn't political. Like, this is just human rights. And, and it's not threatening to your politics. It's just human rights. We're just asking for respect. But the reality is all of this is really political, right? Policies against LGBT people are political. Taking the knee is a response to years of, of politics and, soci- and societal development. And I think at some point, like, we have to be a little bit more honest. And I say that as, you know, to friends who are, you know, who have who are writing letters to UEFA as part of LGBT supporters groups saying this is not political, it's just human rights. I say it to them as well. Like at some point we just have to challenge these organizations to say, actually, this is political and we're challenging you to come down on the side that we agree with. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's my bugbear. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, 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 like I see both yeah. because some of it is just semantics, right. Yeah. Of saying this is a fundamental like human, but human rights, are political like humanity is political because we are engaged with each other in political systems so the two you cannot divorce the two concepts truly and and what i think has been very frustrating to watch uefa is them saying well you can't do this because of politics but they are responding to a political request from places like hungary so one side is political one side isn't and both sides view their own yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and, 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 thing as like and, not political. Yeah, and, and it boils down to, well, if UEFA want to hold themselves to the value, if they want to portray the values that they are in favor of LGBT representation and advancing LGBT rights, then at some point they need to be having conversations with host countries to say, well, this is what is going to be happening at our tournament. Are you sure you want to host it? And that's really what it boils down to. And if the answer to that is we want to host it, but we're not sure about that bit, well, that's the point they have the decision to make. And that's, you know, what we're going to see in the coming years. But hey, look, I think next year's either Europa League or Champions League final is in Budapest. So we'll do it all over again. (laughs) (laughs) It's just a never ending, never ending journey. and, And also I think, you know, this year, it was only the coronavirus pandemic that stopped UEFA's annual congress from being hosted in Minsk in Belarus. Um, they've recently awarded a tournament, um, a youth women's tournament to Belarus as well. And they've also, the Euro 2024, the final two were Germany and Turkey. And Turkey's very low down for LGBT rights as well. And you know, I don't want us to get to the point where we're not engaging with half of Europe because that's also not right. But I don't know, it feels like it needs to be part of a broader discussion. And, you know, there's there's lots of things football can do to bring it to that stage as well. All right, Adam. Well, we will, I'm sure we can circle back around probably in a few months and kind of see where this is shaken out. But I definitely appreciate the time and and also uh, you walking us through what has happened so far at Euros. I think it is a hugely important conversation, one that we are not, really having over here. So I'm I'm definitely glad that you were able to hop on the podcast and walk us through it. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right. Thank you. Cheers. 
Thank you to Sandra and Adam for their time. I've got plenty of links to find them and their work in the show notes. And Adam also just dropped a story on Manchester United women that might introduce uh, might interest many of you as well. One more thing. It's Olympics mode here. There, it's The nose is to the laptop all the time. So mostly I'm just surviving and waiting for Ted Lasso to drop. As always, the home for the show is at fulltimepod.com, where you can find links to all the major podcast platforms. And if you are enjoying the show, it's always a reminder for me that ratings and reviews make a difference. We had a couple of very good weeks, thanks to the U.S. Women's National Team roster and then send-off series, so I appreciate everyone for tuning in. One more call, you can subscribe to The Athletic and support all of our women's soccer coverage right now at theathletic.com slash fulltime. My name is Meg Linehan, and you have been listening to Full Time with Meg Linehan. You can always find me on Twitter and Instagram at It's Meg Linehan and my work at The Athletic. Full Time does not exist without the work and support of senior podcast producer Michael Zimmerman. From The Athletic, I'm Meg Linehan, and thank you for listening. Thank you.